realize how much more fun it is to be up here sometimes because we get to see the kids' faces and, and how excited they are to be here, you know. And, and uh, back <clears throat> when I was in a Sunday church, uh, we took up offering every Sunday. You know, it's like it's a law. And, <clears throat> you know, if you meet, you got to pass the plate. But the thing that I always enjoyed was watching the kids, you know. They were excited to put that money in that plate, you know. Of course, I realize, you know, most of them, mom or dad gave it to them right before, but they were excited about that. They were excited to give to God, you know. Uh, they're excited to be here. So, you know, watch them get infected a little bit, you know. Cause, but that's one of the neat things about this church. I truly think that most people that are here are excited to be here, and they're glad to be here. So, uh, at this time... Curtis Whiteley with the split sermon titled Living Out the Implanted Word. Curtis, if you come. Thank you, Ken. Well, good afternoon. As Ken just said, uh, the title of this message today is Living Out the Implanted Word. And it is going to be, I guess you would call it a sequel or a part two of the last split sermon I gave here uh, back in April, I believe, which was entitled the uh, receive the implanted word and our text today is James the first chapter verses 22 through 25 now last message I gave before Pentecost I gave a message on Pentecost which was a sermonette but back in April I gave a message on James the first chapter verses 19 through 21 and so as we enter in this next part of what James has to say I just want to kind of review uh, what we were talking about you know, some of you might have been here, maybe you remember it, maybe you don't, but I'm going to kind of try to just kind of go through some of the main thrust of what we discussed. Essentially, when we look through James, the first chapter, chapter 1, 19 through 21, one of the things that we saw was is that James discussed this idea of the implanted word, and he gave us some prerequisites in order to be able to receive this implanted word. He talked a lot about the mouth, you know, the, the, that little small body part that was so powerful. You know, we, we gave examples about how powerful the mouth is and how easy it is to get in trouble by such a small body part. We talked about how sometimes the smallest things can have the greatest impact. We saw how we need to watch what we say in comparison to how much we listen. Because this is all... The, you know, talking about James saying that we need to be better hearers and be better listeners and not speak so much so we could receive the implanted word. We also saw as a prerequisite in, you know, taming down our speaking and hyping up our listening, we talked about how James instructs us that we need to let go and get rid of some of that filth that still remains in our lives, maybe from our former lives or former selves. James talks about, you know, that evil remnant that, you know, every now and then tries to creep up and tries to resurface from time to time. And James told us that we need to receive the implanted word, which was able to save our souls. And we identified that implanted word as being, you know, the whole of the gospel message. That gospel message, that bundle of Christ coming to die for our sins, uh, that kingdom, you know, that message of how the kingdom's coming, that message about how 
we are to be transformed by God's Spirit. We saw how Jeremiah, the 31st chapter, and talking about a new covenant someday, how God's Spirit is going to enable us to have a heart after His, that He's going to write His laws and His commandments on our hearts to enable us to have a will that is in conformity with God's will. And that's what we saw. Today, we're going to move forward in James' thinking to the next scriptures, and we're going to see what James has to say. Specifically, he's going to move from hearing the implanted word and receiving. Now, he's telling us to live out that word. So let's go to James, the first chapter. James, the first chapter. And we're going to pick it up in verse 22. We only have a few scriptures today. But it says, in verse 22, it says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. And so we see that James has moved from the receiving of the implanted word, and now he's moving towards the doing. He's basically saying, live out the message. Don't just be mere hearers, but now put what you hear into practice in your lives. And this is obviously very basic. This isn't something that you need to probably hear. You know this. We know from the biblical witness as well as common reasoning tells us that we need to put into practice these things that we hear. We know in Exodus, the 24th chapter, when the children of Israel, they, you know, they came out of Egypt, God led them to Sinai, and one of the things that was done was that they received the law. They received God's commandments, God's covenant. And they listened as the word, as the covenant was being proclaimed in their sight. They heard it. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Again, Psalms 103, 18-21 has a similar sentiment. talks about remembering God's precepts, not just to know them, not just to hear them, but to do them. And this is also echoed when Jesus came in his Sermon on the Mount. We know that in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he talks very frankly about people who think they're doing something, but they're really not. They're not doing it to the intent in which it was originally given. Matthew, the 7th chapter, verse 24 through 27, talks about the two builders. You know, the foundation. You know, Jesus says, you know, whoever listens to my sayings, my teachings, and builds on that, they will be like a person who's built their you know, from the foundation of the rock. We know Jesus is the rock, we, the rock that we build our foundation on. Also, another passage in Luke eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, But he said, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So this is very basic. This is backed up by the biblical witness, and it's also even backed up by Greek thought of the day. In fact, a lot of the Roman and philosophers of the day actually emphasize this very thing, the idea of practicing what you preached. And we know that that's frustrating in our society today because we hear that. You know, practice what you preach. You know, we hear that so often, but 
one of the things we get frustrated with is that we see this not demonstrated very well by certain specific figures in our community or in our society. I mean, think about the politicians. I mean, how many times do we get frustrated with politicians? Because they don't practice what they preach. They say one thing, but then they do another thing. How about religious leaders? You know, one of the things that, you know, I have come across in my discussions with people, especially people that have kind of an anti-religious, you know, mentality to them, one of the things that I've seen to be a common theme is that people sometimes get turned off because they see so many people that claim to be, like, religious, but they see the person doesn't really act upon that. They, they see that the person says one thing, but they do another thing. And so this... In our society, a lot of times, people are turned off by religion altogether because they see so many people saying one thing and actually practicing another. Now, James says this. Doers, and not just hearers, because hearers deceive themselves. Now, there's two shocking implications that we need to look at. The fact that James, as well as Jesus talks about so often, you know, you don't just need to hear, you don't just need to learn, you don't just need to listen, but you need to actually do. One of the implications is that as human beings, and we know this is the case from examples in our lives, from examples from the Bible, we know that as people, we have the ability to hear and even understand with it having no effect. I mean, how many times have you seen people hear a message, or, or maybe even ourselves, we can put ourselves in that situation. Maybe we've heard something. Maybe we've even understood it. Maybe we knew it was true, but we didn't. It didn't cause us to change. It didn't result in any sort of positive change. And we can think about this in religiously. We can think about this, you know, uh, in other aspects. I mean, how many of us know that, you know, we probably shouldn't eat certain foods, but we do. We don't put it into practice. We don't actually follow through with what we know we probably should. And we might even agree, obviously, with abstaining from something, but we don't actually follow through to actually do it. The second implication is, is that as people, as human beings, it is possible to be deceived into thinking that we are actually on the right track when we are in fact not. We can see a lot of examples of this in the Bible. The word deceive, just to let you know in this word, or this, this verse, is the Greek verb that basically means to misreckon, to make a false reckoning. And I just want to kind of give us an illustration from the Bible. I mean, we, we know of the kingdom of, or the king of Israel, the kings of Israel, specifically the first king. We know the first king of Israel was King Saul. And we kind of know how he started out, and then obviously he didn't end very well. But there's one interesting particular story in the Old Testament where we read about how Saul was told by Samuel that he needed to go and basically wipe out the Amalekites. The time had come that God was going to bring about judgment on these people who had been extremely uh, fiercely contrary to the children of Israel while they were in the wilderness. And so they were, you know, Saul was going about and he, you know, rustled up his army and his military. And he was told that he was to destroy everything. Men, women, children, infants, ox, sheep, camel, everything. Not to leave anything alive. But what does Saul do? He wiped out the Amalekites, but decided that he was going to allow the king to live, and he was going to allow the best flocks, the best oxen, the best uh, 
basically livestock of the Amalekites alive. And so basically Saul, you know, comes and he does these things and then Samuel gets word of it and Samuel meets up with Saul and Samuel's like, or Saul looks at Samuel and says, hey, I'm glad you're here. Hey, we did everything God said. And Samuel's like, really? Then why do I hear this animal in the background? Why do I hear this lamb? What's this? And, you know, Saul says, well, hey, don't worry. I just, I, I let this live because I was going to dedicate it to the Lord. We just save the best for God. And then Samuel's thinking, uh, that's not what I told you to do. That's not what God instructed you. And Samuel, or Saul rather, kept telling Samuel, but I, I kept the command like you said. And then he kind of takes Samuel to the side and says, hey, look. My army over here kind of pressured me. You know, I got to make them happy. I was afraid that they're going to leave me if I didn't leave them. You know, if I didn't give them a little something, something, you know, they're not going to really support me. And so what Samuel does is says, "Look, obviously you're not fit for the kingdom. You know, God has shown me that He has chosen someone else." So there was a great consequence. But the interesting part about the story was is that Saul claimed and thought and probably deceived himself, hey, you know, it's not completely, but, you know, I, for the most part, I did what God said. Hey, I've kept, you know, I've kept the command of God. You know, almost deceiving himself. Another illustration could be looked at it by Jesus. You know, Jesus comes here and he says all types of things. But one of the interesting things that Jesus a lot of times had to say was, is, hey, look, you guys that think you're, you know, really big-time holy rollers, you're not. In fact, there's going to be a day when you're going to come to me and you're going to say, look at all these things we did, God. Oh, my goodness. We, we did everything you can imagine. We, we cast out demons in your name. We did all these great wonders. We healed these people. And Jesus is going to say, I don't even know you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. So we see that there is an obvious reality that people can deceive themselves into actually thinking that they're doing the will of God, but they're not. In fact, Jesus even criticized the religious leaders, not for keeping the law, but rather for not keeping the law and claiming they were. You know, there's a passage in the Bible. I think it's Mark, the seventh chapter. We know about how Mark 7 talks about how, uh, you know, Jesus and his disciples were criticized because his disciples were not, you know, adhering to the practices of, you know, all the different things that the Jews, the traditions of the elders that the Jews did, you know, washing pots and washing their hands in a certain way. There's also another t time where Jesus uh, was criticizing the, the, the Jewish leaders specifically for kind of allowing a backdoor way of getting around the commandment that said that you need to honor your father and mother. See, there's this Hebrew word, we, they call it korban, and basically it signifies that if a person was to dedicate certain things to God, then it could only go to God. So if a person maybe got mad at mom and dad and said, you know what, I tell you what, I'm going to get back at them. I'm just going to dedicate all my possessions to Corbin. If I die, you don't get nothing. So it was kind of a way around from observing that commandment to honor father and mother. And Jesus was criticizing the fact that there's a lot of different things, backdoor ways that people would try to do with an ill and a... And a a bad or an evil intent, you know, a sinful intent. And so we see the implication is it's obvious. We need to do what God says. We need to not just hear God's word, we need to put it into practice. But the weird thing about it is, is that it's easier to know this than actually do this. 
The fact that James is saying this and Jesus says what he does all throughout the Gospels shows us that it's very prevalent for people just to be hearers and not doers. And so we're going to move on now to verse 23 through 24 because James is going to kind of give us an illustration. He's going to talk to us about a man who looks in the mirror at himself. And it says in verse 23, it says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately he forgets what kind of man he was. Now, I'm going to just kind of give a little disclaimer on this passage because I poured over this passage this week, went to the best sources I could absolutely find on the different cultural issues, the different background issues, and this is a very difficult passage to interpret, believe it or not. It seems simple, but in looking at it, there are a couple possible intentions that James meant. In other words, the best sources I found in uncovering the cultural issues as well as the textual issues basically said that we're not completely sure about the analogy. This does not mean that God's word is not clear. Rather, we're still able to get to the heart of what James is saying. What is difficult, though, is understanding with complete certainty the intent of this analogy. But there are certain key things that we can look at, key words that we can look at that kind of points us in a specific direction to a more plausible explanation of what James meant. The first key word is the, the word mirrors. Now, we, we know what mirrors are. I mean, most of us probably use the mirror today in getting ready for church. But in the ancient world, mirrors you know, weren't the same kind of mirrors that we use, but usually were made of some sort of polished bronze or copper. And as you can imagine, that's not quite the perfect picture that maybe we have today when we use our mirrors. You know, 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, verse 12, you know, the love chapter, where there's a passage in there in the very last part of that chapter, in verse 12, it says that, you know, we see, you know, in a glass darkly. You know, we can't quite make out completely what everything is, you know, in a perfect way, but, you know, we see, you know, maybe a little bit. So, in other words, mirrors in these in this time period, they weren't perfect reflections. A lot of times, maybe you wouldn't see everything, all the imperfections. And so one would have to actually go to this you know, piece of copper, a piece of bronze that had been polished, which they were using as a mirror, and they would have to intently look. They'd have to really study themselves to see all the different things that they were wanting to see. And interestingly, this word for observe, or observing, is actually a Greek word that doesn't just connote the idea of a quick glance. You know, I'm going over to the mirror, check me out, and I'm, I'm gone. It's actually a word that says that a person who goes and carefully looks, intensely studies themselves in a mirror, which makes this analogy even more complicated because the man leaves and immediately forgets. But let me just give an illustration that I think points us in a direction I think that James is trying to go with this. As I mentioned, all of us use mirrors. I mean, it's probably one of the most taken-for-granted pieces of technology, whatever you want to call it, that we have. And so, you know, we use them. I mean, I used a mirror today to make sure my tie was on straight. And I came to church. There's a mirror right here in the foyer that I used to make sure that whenever I put this little microphone on, that it was straight and it was in the right spot. So I, I used a mirror that, to aid me and help me see for the purpose of correction. 
And so many of you probably did the same thing today. Maybe you woke up, some of you men, maybe you shaved, and you looked at the mirror, and you shaved your face, and you made sure you didn't miss a spot. Maybe some of you women, maybe you used a mirror to comb your hair this morning, to make sure that it's in the proper spot, make, to put your makeup on, whatever you use. We use, as people, we use mirrors, and often we use mirrors for the purpose to aid us to correct. And so in our society, as well as in new society, mirrors were used for aids for remediation of some sort of thing. Maybe my hair is not quite fixed the right way. Uh, maybe I have some dirt on my face. Maybe I have uh, some food that got left on my face. Essentially, mirrors are helping us see ourselves so we can maybe give a, you know, more attention to an area of need. And so possibly what James is saying here is that a person who only hears and doesn't do is like a person who looks in the mirror, sees dirt on his face, and walks away and doesn't do anything about it, which is kind of ludicrous. And actually, not only doesn't do anything about it, but forgets that he even has that imperfection or that, that problem that he needs to fix. And so it's possible that James is saying that a person, and we'll see this in a minute, that is looking at a mirror and sees their imperfection and doesn't do anything about it is like a person who decides, you know, if we think about the Word of God being a mirror, showing us who we really are in the perspective of God, shows us our imperfection, shows us that we need Christ, that we need God, that we look at that, we see that, and we don't do anything about it. It could be possible. It also could be possible that James is intentionally presenting a ludicrous analogy. The fact that a man would, or a woman would go to a mirror, look at it, study it, study it intently, walk away, and then five minutes later wouldn't even be able to point themselves out of like a police lineup. It's a ludicrous example. So it's possible that this example is intentionally ludicrous for the purpose of James saying, look, just like that's absurd, it's just the same way... It, 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 it's just as absurd for a person to just listen to the Word of God and not do it as it is for a person to look into a mirror and forget what he looks like. That's a possibility. But as we move on, and I'll allow you, if you want to in your spare time, want to look up this passage, the fact of the matter is, is that even though it's not completely clear, it does not take away from the heart of what James is trying to get to, which is basically in the next verse. The next verse, verse 25 James says, but he, in contrast to the person who looks in the mirror and does nothing about it, he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Now, again, the person who's looking at the mirror intently did so. This is a different Greek word, but it still implies a very, very careful study of a person who is gazing upon the law of liberty. This, in other translations, the NIV, it comes out and it says looks intently. Someone who looks intently at the law of liberty. The NLT, it's a New Living Translation, look carefully. And in fact, uh, as I was researching this word, this word actually has the idea of a person stooping down to look closely at a specific object. It actually kind of has the idea of maybe like a child. A child is walking. I actually studied this yesterday. And then it happened to me. It was really bizarre. But basically, the idea is, is like a child stooping down maybe to examine a bug, see what kind of bug it is, what's that, you know, what, what, you know, what the bug's doing, what it looks like. That's kind of the idea that's being brought out in this word, you know, looking, you know, looking into. 
And in fact, yesterday I was on a walk with Asher, my son, and there was a rock on the ground, and he stops and looks at everything, and he literally got down on his knee and was looking at this rock very intently. Now, I'm not necessarily making anything about that, but I just thought, how, you know, what a nice, convenient example to use tomorrow whenever I give this message. But anyway, it's basically bringing out the idea of someone who looks and meditates, who studies in an intent way. But the word that's now used is, is James has moved from using the word, you know, the word, like the implanted word. Now he's talking about something known as the perfect law of liberty. Now, this word perfect, it means completeness, flawless in all its aspects. And in this context, as I mentioned last message, this is a context that we are reading that James is talking to a primarily Jewish audience. There's no doubt that this context is a reference to the Mosaic Law, as some people call it, the Torah, uh, the Law of God. As adjusted or as, I guess you would say, slanted with a Christological idea. In other words, the idea that the law is perfect is a very common idea in this period of time. And we know that when Jesus came here, especially in Matthew, the fifth chapter, sixth chapter, seventh chapter, and some of the other gospels, but the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus did come and showed basically the complete part of the law. Not that it wasn't available before Jesus, per se. I mean, we know that there are men and women of the Scriptures in the Old Testament that had God's Spirit, that did obviously exemplify a observing and an obedience to God from the heart. But Jesus came, and it's interesting that He came, as we know, He didn't come to abolish the law, but He came to reveal the true intent, the, the magnification of His law to a higher standard. We see this with adultery elevated to lust, not just actually the physical act. Murder, elevated to anger. Basically, getting at the heart of what the law was always intended to do, which was point to God's perfect will and pattern. Okay? And so, at the end of Matthew chapter 5, in this, Jesus actually says, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, we know we're not perfect. But we're striving for perfection as it has been prevent, or presented to us in Christ. We know that Christ was perfect. And we're going beyond just the mere physical, like was a precedent in Jesus' day, to the heart of the matter, to the heart, to the intent. You know, what Jesus is trying to present, look, God's ways, God's statutes, His commandments, His laws, you know, they have always been meant to show the intent. Basically, the, the, full, uh, the full intent of the law is basically started with the heart. I mean, that's what we do. I mean, we do things out of our heart. Those are where our desires go. And this is what Jesus is talking about. And it's interesting because in James, he adds the word law of liberty, the law of freedom. And so we know that he's not talking about some sort of law that binds a person down, weighs a person down, but rather a law that's characterized by freedom. And this is something else that's greatly connected to Jesus' words, as well as some of the other passages in Scripture. Now, we know that the law reveals sin. We know that the, the, the transgression of the law, you know, the wages of it is death. We know that sin is the transgression of the law. We know that sin, or rather the law, is something that helps us identify sin. 
And so as the law reveals sin, we know that it shows us how to be free from the immorality of the world. You know, even the philosophers in this point in time, we're talking about the Greek philosophers, you know, the ones that have now been in Roman society, even they talked about how knowledge, wisdom, you know, basically obeying a, a code of standard actually frees a person. There's liberty in that. Philo, who was an actual Jewish historian that actually tried to uh, bring in Greek ideas and to make it fit like basically the ideas of the Old Testament, he's even seen as saying such things as, you know, things like anger, things like, you know, passions that are sinful. They're actually like things that make us slaves. There are things that basically enslave us to the ways of this world. And so we know that this is an idea that links back to what James had to say. James says, you know, put away the filth, all that excess, you know, baggage, that sin that, you know, somehow has kind of came back over, you know, even though you've been converted, you know, that some of that, the, the remnants of sin that still kind of, you know, tries to linger around, you know, put that away. Those things weigh you down. Those things enslave us, and we, we see this, you know, and that's part of the, you know, basically the journey that we have come with God, that God is, you know, like the ancient Israelites, he's brought us out of those ways. He's brought us out of the worldly system for the purpose of freeing us, not just freeing us from sin, obviously, but the contraptions of sin, the, the, the bondage of sin, you know, the, the spiritual bondage of sin that basically has eternal implications and, you know, makes us worthy of death, but also the physical consequences that sin brings in this life. We know that sin in this life brings consequences physically, and we also know that there's a spiritual consequence in the next life. And so there is an aspect that James is bringing out here and trying to relate law with liberty, contrary to the way sometimes you hear it being talked to or about today in other different religious circles. But there's two parallels as I close I want to bring out, which is very interesting. The very last part of this verse, it says, the doer of the work, the doer of that law of liberty, this one will be blessed in what he does. This is a great parallel to the things that we see in Psalm 1. We see that Psalm 1 discusses the contrast between the man who walks in the ways of God versus the man who walks in the path of sinners or wickedness. Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the entire Bible, the most exhausted chapter in the entire Bible that echoes this sentiment. But the law being a lamp to our feet, the commandments, they're, they're not something that binds us. They're not something that makes us you know, entrapped or you know, enslaves us. Rather, it's the sin that does so. It's the opposite. Now, the second parallel is linking this with the implanted word. The title of this message today is Living Out the Implanted Word. The implanted word basically is something that we have been given that's in our hearts. You know, the implanted word is revealed when God's spirit united with our spirit. We know that, you know, basically there was a transformation that took place when we were converted. And you know, we heard about God's truth. We accepted Christ as our Savior. We were baptized, and we know we, we've, you know, a part of that is receiving the Holy Spirit. And God is now creating in us a new creature. There's been a transformation. And part of this transformation, as is shown in delivering of the new covenant in Jeremiah, the 31st chapter, part of this transformation is conforming our will, 
with God's will. That's part of the transformation. We are supposed to be transforming in the people who used to have these this old, selfish, carnal uh, nature to us that we still sometimes have to battle into this new creature that's perfect, that's completely in line with God's will. And so linking this idea of the implanted word with the law of liberty or freedom, this echoes that reality of God writing his laws on our heart. Why is this freedom? That's the question we have to ask. Because if I'm doing my desires, and those desires are God's desires, because that's what I've inherited through this conforming to God's ways, to His pattern, then now I am truly free. If we are conforming to God's will, then we will have a desire to worship God, to obey Him, to keep His commandments, to keep His laws. It won't be something that, oh, got to do this. Oh, Friday at sundown, I need to do this. Can't work. Can't do my own thing. Or other things, other morality issues. It's not something that we're like, oh, man, I don't really want to do this, but I'm Christian, i got to do it. You know, it's something I'm supposed to do. Rather, it's something that is bore out of the heart. We want to do it. We have God's will. God's will is taking over our will. And we are accepting it. God's spirit has united with our spirit to transform us into a person, a creature, that wants to obey God. And when we obey God, when we actually conform to God's will, which ultimately we know the law of God in its full intent as Jesus revealed it from the heart, points to God's will. And this is how we become free. So in closing, I just want to emphasize the fact that even though we know this, we know we've got to be doers of God's word. We know we, we, you know we need to obey God. Obviously, the Bible shows us that a prevalent issue in humanity and dealing with God's dealing with humans is that we don't do it. And this does not mean that we have to somehow live up to some standard for God to have grace on us, live up to some standard so we can have salvation. We know that. We know that we are saved by God's grace. No matter what we do, we could never be perfect enough. That's an issue we need to have to deal with. Another issue we have to deal with is the fact that the tradition that we come from is obviously very different from other Christian traditions. And so what happens is, is that, I mean, we just need to face up to it. We are different. We keep the Sabbath. We don't go to church on Sunday. We believe in the Old Testament uh, laws that they're still applicable to the Christian. We keep the holy days. And sometimes what happens is, is someone from the outside accuses us of something like legalism. Oh, you legalist, you keep the law. And so, compounding that issue sometimes is that we get people from our tradition who grossly misinterpret and misapply the law of God or misemphasize it. And so, we see sometimes people who do it in what would be considered a legalist way. And then you have people from the outside and we get this kickback like we sometimes are ashamed. Maybe people believe we're Judaizing. And we don't want to look like Judaizers. 
And that's been an issue, I believe, in our tradition, that because of criticisms from the outside and also misappropriation of the law from the outside or being obedient to God has sometimes made us maybe de-emphasize the law of God. And so emphasizing the law of God is not something that we do because we believe that we're saved by God's law, but rather because we believe that, hey, look, God has saved us. God has had this grace upon us. We're saved through Christ, and it's something that helps show us, helps be a light to our feet, a, light, you know, a lamp to our path. And so as I end here today, I just want to encourage us to not allow people from the outside, you know, that might want to criticize us because we keep the Sabbath, we keep the holy days, and also don't allow people from the inside who misinterpret, misappropriate the law of God, misapply it, don't allow them or those on the outside to somehow convince us that we need to denigrate God's law because God's law is complete and perfect as was revealed by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gave us the example, the full extent, the intent of the law. That's something we never should be ashamed of. We should never have to give an excuse why we keep the law of God. If people want to call us Judaizers, so what? That's their problem. That's their problem. Don't allow people from the outside who miscalculate and judge us to somehow affect the way we want to emphasize God's law in a correct way as was taught by Jesus Christ and as taught by the apostles. So, I want to end on that. Thank you very much. came to my mind when you were telling about Saul. 